Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. Today, we are delighted to be bringing you a special episode in conjunction with the Appellate Project on voting rights. And we are delighted to have as special guests two lawyers of color who recently argued two significant voting rights cases, Bruce Spiva and Debo Adegbole. Our first guest is Bruce Spiva, and he's a partner at the law firms of Perkins Coie and the managing partner of their D.C. office, where he is an active political law practice. He recently argued on behalf of Democratic National Committee in Brnovich versus DNC, which we have discussed extensively on the show, and in particular in a few of our end-of-term deep dives. So, Bruce, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Glad to be here. And let me introduce our other guest, Debo Adegbele, who's a partner at the firm Wilmer Hale, where he's part of the Government and Regulatory Litigation Group and also chair of the Anti-Discrimination Practice Group. Uh, he also currently serves as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He was previously at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, where he served as acting president and director counsel, um, and in that capacity argued Shelby County versus Holder. Uh, Debo, welcome to Strict Scrutiny. It is great to have you on with us. Great to be with you. So this episode is the brainchild of the wonderful organization, The Appellate Project, with whom we partnered to do an episode last April. The Appellate Project is an organization devoted to increasing the diversity and inclusion of appellate practice. They partnered with the Civil Rights Clinic at Howard University School of Law to incorporate appellate advocacy into the clinic's practice. They also run regular programming designed to help students of color learn more about and succeed in the field of appellate advocacy. To that end, they run a national mentorship program, which pairs students with appellate mentors and provides students with appellate-focused resources like clerkship support, networking opportunities with the appellate bar, skill-building workshops, guidance on appellate job opportunities, and more. So if you are a law student of color interested in appellate practice, be sure to apply for this year's mentorship program by September 6th. Uh, You can learn more on their website, theappellateproject.org, and you can also sign up there if you're an appellate attorney interested in serving as a mentor. So this episode really brings together key parts of the Appellate Project's mission. First, we're going to highlight the importance of appellate litigation in our everyday lives. And in particular, we're going to highlight how appellate litigation often has a disproportionate impact on communities of color. We'll also highlight and uplift the role of lawyers of color in appellate litigation. And that's a big part of the Appellate Project's mission to empower and to diversify the next generation of appellate attorneys and judges. And so we are delighted to bring all of these themes together in this episode, which is going to be focused specifically on voting rights. And as you know, We think voting rights are incredibly important. Um, There's actually nothing that's as important as enforcing the Voting Rights Act. Uh, But 
That's part of the reason why we're here today. It's part of the reason why Leah has done two plus episodes on Brnovich, um, not just so she can dunk on Justice Alito, but because these really go to the landscape of how we're going to construct a multiracial society and democracy. So Leah, I'll let you set the stage. So we will set the scene a little bit before we bring in Bruce and Davo, just to give our listeners a sense of some of the cases um, you both have recently been involved in uh, in the lower courts. We don't always highlight this sort of work on the show, but it is super important. So Bruce submitted a brief on behalf of Black Lives Matter protesters in BLM versus Trump. He argued on behalf of the League of Women Voters of New Hampshire in a matter related to a New Hampshire law requiring newly registered voters to provide proof of residency. He successfully challenged Missouri's voter ID law on state constitutional grounds. He argued on behalf of the League of United Latin American Citizens of Iowa. I could go on and on, but for the sake of timing, I will just say he's also been involved in voting rights litigation in Wisconsin, Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, and elsewhere. Debo has also been very active in the space, serving as counsel for plaintiffs of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the New Georgia Project versus Ravensburger litigation. That's one of the challenges to Georgia's recently enacted restrictions on voting. Um, also served as counsel for doctors and professors as amicus in uh, Tennessee voting rights litigation related to the coronavirus pandemic in uh, the case Fisher versus Hargett, um, and also as counsel to Common Cause as amicus in Fish versus Kobach, a challenge to a Kansas law that required proof of citizenship before registering to vote. Um, I, too, could go on and on, um, but we want to uh, move ahead to some of the recent Supreme Court litigation that's going to be the focus of our discussion today. Suffice it to say that both Bruce and Davo have been in the trenches fighting for voting rights in the lower federal courts, and today we're going to focus mostly on the Supreme Court litigation in which they've been involved. And so one of the first cases that we should highlight is Shelby County versus Holder, which was a 2013 five to four decision that essentially eviscerated the preclearance requirements of the VRA. So just for background, under the preclearance regime of the VRA, states that had a history of disenfranchising minority voters were required to first pre-clear any changes to their voting laws, even minor changes, with the Department of Justice or a panel of judges. And in Shelby County, the court held that the pre-clearance provisions violated principles of equal sovereignty between the states, and so the court struck those down. It's hard to overstate the impact of that decision on our current landscape, um, but Justice Kagan has done a pretty good job of making the case. As she observed in her dissent in Brnovich, once Section 5 strictures came off, states and localities put in place new restrictive voting laws with foreseeably adverse effects on minority voters. On the very day Shelby County issued, Texas announced that it would implement a strict voter identification requirement that had failed to clear Section 5. Other states, Alabama, Virginia, Mississippi, fell like dominoes, adopting measures similarly vulnerable to preclearance reviews. State and localities redistricted, fought drawing new boundary lines or replacing neighborhood-based seats with at-large seats in ways guaranteed to reduce minority representation. And that's just what immediately happened. More recently, we've seen a spate of restrictive voting laws that have been passed throughout the country, and it's reached a fever pitch in recent months. And again, Justice Kagan highlighted this in its connection to that earlier case, Shelby County, in her dissent in Brnovich. She noted that state after state has taken up or enacted legislation erecting new barriers to voting. Some of those restrictions may be lawful under the Voting Rights Act, but chances are that some have had the kind of impact that the act was designed to prevent and that they make the political process less open to minority voters than to others. 
And I don't want to belabor the Brnovich either facts or decisions because we have spent quite a bit of time on this show talking about the case. But basically, at issue in Brnovich were two Arizona voting restrictions, one of which required the discarding of votes cast in the wrong precinct, um, and the other of which prohibited, with few exceptions, the collection and return of ballots by third parties. The Supreme Court found that those restrictions did not violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, in an opinion by Justice Alito, paired by a passionate dissent by Justice Kagan, from which Melissa has just read. Maybe we can start by asking asking either of you to kind of talk a little bit about what the majorities in those cases did not get. Before I begin, I should emphasize that I am speaking today only on behalf of myself and not on behalf of my firm or any of my firm's clients. I think in Brnovich, um, which was the case that I uh, argued, basically, uh, I mean, there were many things, but the overarching thing is uh, uh, kind of undermining Section 2's purpose to reach uh, both new ways of discriminating, which was the the very essence of the reason for the original 1965 Voting Rights Act and and animated the uh, 1982 amendments as well, Um, but also, ironically, uh, um, had the effect of making it more difficult to challenge old ways that are already on the books, such as the out-of-precinct voting law that we challenged uh, in Arizona, which had the effect of disenfranchising minorities in Arizona by two to one, and uh, which had, over the years, uh, disenfranchised tens of thousands of people, far more than any other state that had a similar rule. And I guess from the perspective of Shelby County, I think there were two big things that the court got wrong. The, the first is to underappreciate the, the lessons of history and to underappreciate our democracy's fragility, that the whole purpose of the Voting Rights Act is that for many, many, many years, we did not deliver on the promise of the Constitution. And for the first time, the Voting Rights Act represented a commitment to a minority inclusion principle that allowed the country to begin to deliver on its founding promises and the promises that were embraced in the Reconstruction after the Civil War. And to understate and underappreciate the road that was walked, the blood that was shed, to have these protections in federal law was a colossal mistake that I think will will not uh, be treated kindly by history. The the other thing that, that I would say is that Shelby County also represented, in a sense, a a warning or a signal that the the old practices of trying to win through subtraction rather than winning through addition in elections were going to be okay and that the federal government was going to be in retreat from its longstanding effort to stand as a guardian of our democracy. And that signaling effect, as we now know after Bruce's case, may have been as important or even more important than the elimination of the protections themselves, which, of course, were tremendously important. Well, can we go back to Shelby County um, and and sort of the idea that it was signaling something? Because the court seemed to understand, at least that majority seemed to understand, that there was a lot at stake in dismantling the preclearance requirements. And indeed, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote that opinion, noted that not all was lost because Section 2 still lived and you could still bring litigation-based challenges to voting laws um, through that avenue. How come the court didn't refer back to that in now hobbling those litigation-based approaches to challenges under the Voting Rights Act in Brnovich? I think it's fair to say that that what we have seen is a, a 
a march away from the court as a as a guardian of, of voting protections under the Roberts court. And they didn't refer back to it, I take it, because they, they probably didn't mean it terribly seriously. If, if you read the Bronovich decision, it's hard to imagine that such a cramped view of the reach of Section 2 could be consistent with the robustness that we sort of understood Section 2 to, uh, to, to provide in terms of minority voter protections in the briefs and, and certainly in the context of the argument at the time of Shelby County. Essentially, what we were told is that the preclearance protections were too much and the court was, in a sense, elevating perceived harms that state and localities were facing and diminishing the visible and demonstrated harms that individual voters had faced and would face. Along those same lines, I mean, in my, uh, you know, minute of closing remarks uh, at the court in Brnovich, I quoted from Justice Roberts' uh, statement in Shelby uh, saying that uh, Section 2 still exists as a nationwide ban on discrimination and nobody doubts that voting discrimination still exists, which was which was prophetic uh, because, as, as you noted earlier, there were a slew in North Carolina and many other places, a slew of uh, vote suppression measures that followed immediately after after Shelby uh, County. And um, more to more to the point uh, uh, that Debo made, um, you know, there, there's this view, I think, that kind of comes out of the Alito majority opinion in Brnovich that, well, it's kind of too easy to prove these Section 2 claims. I mean, uh, you know, Shelby was kind of like, well, it's uh, the, the, the federal government is getting in the way of kind of ordinary election uh, regulation and they ought to they ought to have to meet a higher standard. And but, you know, private litigants can can prove out a Section 2 claim, which is, is no no easy task, even under the old standard. And then Brnovich comes along and says, well, but we, we think this uh, this standard uh, that the circuit courts have been using actually will result in too many of these laws being struck down, which, of course, is counterfactual. And so we're going to we're going to announce some guidelines that that will make it harder to bring these cases in successfully. For a court that is so expressly interested in history and originalism, it seems to have not only forgotten what it said in Shelby County, but in Shelby County, forgotten like what happened in our country's history for, you know, the 200 years that preceded Shelby County. Like this wasn't a multiracial democracy and didn't attempt to be before the Voting Rights Act. It didn't appreciate how the Voting Rights Act sought to change the way things are, including the 1982 amendments, you know, at issue in um, Burnabitch. So, you know, that is definitely part of what I think the court missed. And then, you know, something that really struck me in Brnovich was a line from Justice Kagan's dissent, and it was about the ballot collection provision in which she said that except in a pair of footnotes, the term Native American appears once, count it once, in the majority's five-page discussion of Arizona's ballot collection ban. So, of course, that community's strikingly limited access to mail service is not addressed. And I think that really captures the point, Debo and Bruce, you were making, which is the court is so obsessed with this theoretical risk to elections from voter fraud and completely oblivious to the very real and actual harms that voters are experiencing as a result of this law, that it can't even bring itself to mention them in an opinion. It spends more time talking about voting fraud and the threat of voter fraud in a case about voting rights and the threat of voting discrimination. And, and it's ironic. I, I totally agree. It's ironic because 
their voter fraud is is statistically almost non-existent. Um, but you compare that to the thirty eight thousand people who were completely disenfranchised by the out of precinct policy and and the the although we don't have a precise number, the thousands of people who uh, relied upon ballot collection, particularly on the Native American lands. Um, and uh, the concern of the court, though, the majority, though, is with the, with the almost statistically non-existent voter fraud um, and the, the attempt to try to uh, prevent kind of phantom voter fraud over actually very real and, and documented and demonstrated instances of disenfranchisement or burden, burdening of the vote. Can I ask a quick follow-up to something that Debo said, which is this kind of the signaling function of Shelby County? Um, I'm curious whether you at LDF and in kind of voting rights litigation world more broadly, like, were you surprised at the speed and intensity of the moves in a number of states to restrict voting within hours, in some cases, of Shelby County coming down? So that's one question. And sort of a related question is, you know, so signaling essentially basically inviting states to kind of shift or inviting one of our major political coalitions to shift to a strategy of subtraction, right, to restricting access to the vote rather than trying to kind of grow the number of voters drawn to their policy platform and message. I'm curious if, it's, if you have a sense of how causation works here, right? So like Shelby County obviously doesn't bring about that moment. Does it just sort of accelerate a trend that is already underway? Is it responsive to a trend and just kind of removes an obstacle? I'm, I'm curious about sort of how causation runs and also just, yeah, the degree to which you all were taken aback by what we saw in the immediate aftermath of Shelby County. The way I look at it is that um, we we don't really think that Shelby County caused the um, commitment to uh, subtraction rather than addition and winning with policy and winning with persuasion, winning with expanding the electorate. We, we don't think that Shelby County caused that. But what we knew as students of history and of voting rights is that there are two equally effective ways to win elections. One is by doing that is the mobilization. But demobilization is a longstanding tried and true path of winning elections in America. It's part of our history. And the Voting Rights Act was an interrupter of that low road in American democracy. And we saw the Voting Rights Act as a commitment to a high road in American democracy. It was an embrace of what was aspirational in the Constitution and in the Reconstruction Amendments. And so what we understood, because history taught us this, is that if you take away the protections, as Justice Ginsburg noted in her dissent, if you take away and put down your umbrella in a rainstorm, you will get wet. So when you look at the congressional record that was before uh, the court, before Congress, and then before the court, nobody is surprised that bad things are going to happen if you take away the prophylaxis of of preclearance in Shelby County. We know that's going to happen because there's a historical record. There are 16,000 pages of congressional record telling us that it's going to happen. And if you think about it in contrast to Bruce's case and to Bronovich, it's extraordinary that all of that overproof in Shelby County and in the Voting Rights Act reauthorization record of this pattern of persistent and adaptive discrimination is not enough to sustain Congress's use of its expressly granted remedial powers. But in the case of Branovich, the court elevates legislative justification for a non-existent harm. And those things are somehow parallel in the space of voting. So I wouldn't say, Kate, that it's so much a causation effect. It is a taking down 
of the guard of the protections that will have a foreseeable effect. That's that's the way I look at it. Can I ask a question and maybe invite you to help us um, make some connections for our listeners between cases that I think are doctrinally siloed from one another? So you have, on the one hand, cases like Shelby County and Brnovich that are strictly about the scope and reach of the Voting Rights Act. Then you have cases like Ruscio versus Common Cause, which are about gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering in particular. Then you have the census case, which is about um, how you will actually construct the census and ask questions of individuals, and, and in this particular case, to include on the census a question about citizenship. How do all of these things work together for the purpose of changing the landscape of the law of democracy? Because I think people understand them in isolation, but don't understand that they're actually working in concert to affect a really grand change in the way that we think about how individuals are counted and what that impact might mean for voting rights going forward. Uh, maybe I'll take a first pass, and I'm sure Bruce will amplify. So one, one way to think about the different cases that you pointed to is that they are all channels and pathways to participate in, in the democracy, I, either through the census of having um, the population counted so we can figure out what needs to happen during reapportionment, how the vast um, resources that governments, uh, fed, federal and local governments spend are going to be allocated, one person, one vote. How are we going to share and distribute political power? Um, that's what's going on in the census case. And figuring out who counts, literally who counts in America is what the census cases are about. Do you count or do you not count? Vernon Damer, one of the civil rights martyrs, has on his tombstone, if you don't vote, you don't count. He was killed by the Klan because of his efforts registering voters in Mississippi. So the census cases are literally about who counts. And then the redistricting cases are, in a sense, about how much you count. How much do your votes count? Is there a way through machinations and manipulation to lessen the power of minority votes, to diminish the power of voters? Can you set the rules in a way to um, weaken those voices, dilute those voices, as we say in the law? And so again, in a sense, it's about who counts. And then the protections in the cases that Bruce and I um, have been speaking about are about the guardrails to make sure that we can stem the longstanding historical efforts to narrow the electorate and to reduce the ways in which people participate. So I think the through line, Melissa, is that all of these cases are about who counts in a democracy and the Reconstruction Amendments and the Civil War were about who counts in the United States and who has the rights of citizenship. So you said at the beginning that these cases are come to the core of what's important in constitutional litigation. And I think the who counts question is fundamental to any democracy. That was a brilliant recitation. I want to just like put that on the shelf and send it out to my students. Um, it, it, it's just a great encapsulation of how all of these things link up together, even though we are used to talking about them as sort of siloed events. I agree. The one thing that I find disturbing in terms of a, a thread that may be developing between them is, um, you know, in the redistricting context, uh, I think it's always been kind of given that some political considerations are acceptable. And the, the reason uh, the Supreme Court uh, for finding it non-justiciable is you couldn't measure how much partisanship 
uh, is too much. Um, it wasn't that uh, the court was saying that partisanship in redistricting is a great thing uh, or that it's OK, but it's just that their position was that you, the courts couldn't reliably measure it, uh, even though there were lots of measures that were were proposed. Um, and uh, it, that's starting to uh, to seep into the vote denial context where until uh, Judge Easterbrook's decision in the uh, Frank case, uh, there wasn't really anybody who suggested that partisan considerations should have anything to do with who can vote. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say how much your vote counts or whether your, your, your vote is being diluted, but what, whether your vote can be burdened or denied uh, shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be acceptable to say, well, I'm not, it's not about race, it's about party. I'm just trying to keep Democrats from voting. Um, that, that ought to be an independent uh, constitutional violation. And that's, that's starting to seep into uh, the vote denial context. And hopefully that won't go much, uh, much further. So we've been talking a lot about the opinions themselves. Um, I hate to ask you both to reflect back on these oral arguments, um, but I'm going to do it anyways. So what perspective or perspectives do you think the court, again, just didn't get or overlooked or missed during the oral arguments in these cases? Some things I was glad uh, that the court, uh, none of the members of the court seemed to uh, seize on during oral argument. For instance, some of the more extreme uh, points of view of the proper standard uh, for Section 2 that was set forth by the Republican uh, interveners. Um, and the, uh, they did, nobody seemed to bite on the notion that Section 2 itself was unconstitutional or would be if the prevailing standard were, were implemented. In fact, even in the opinion, although I think it accomplishes some of that through indirection, the court didn't really grasp onto any of those of those points of views expl- explicitly. It simply laid out guidelines and and um, and even recognized that many of the Senate factors that the case we were arguing about actually still had some place in the analysis. Although you know they they discounted uh, some that we think are quite significant and should should play a, a more robust role in the analysis. I wasn't naive, but coming out of the oral argument, I actually felt. A little more optimistic uh, about the prospects of what what would come out uh, than I had before the oral argument. And I guess from the perspective of the the Shelby County argument, I think the part that was hardest to grapple with is the extent to which the court barely grapples with the very substantial congressional record that was assembled in support of the legislation. Um, it, it looked past many of its own decisions. If you were to say to your appellate students, I'm going to give you a, a, a case to argue that has four Supreme Court cases on point and a 16,000 page congressional record in support of the statute that was passed by the Senate 98-0, I think folks would think in the abstract that that would be a pretty easy day at the office. Um, instead, the court, in a sense, was sitting almost as if it was a court of first impression. It was sitting almost like the Katzenbach court in 1966. That is the precedent case that initially upheld the challenge to the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act. And the court looked past, I think, the congressional record. And if you read the opinion, you will strain yourself to see the court grappling with the 16,000-page congressional record. And if, if you want to really prove that up, look at the, look at the opinion that, uh, 
that that uh, David Tatel wrote in the earlier case, Northwest Austin, talking about how detailed the congressional record supporting the statute was. And so in a sense, what I think the court was missing is that it was standing almost as a, a super legislature deciding whether or not this was good policy rather than asking the question, did Congress appropriately use its expressly granted power under a constitution that was amended after the Civil War to give that power to Congress, in part because earlier Supreme Courts got it wrong. There were definitely several moments at oral argument in which that impression came through from the justices. Maybe we'll just play one clip here, which is my former boss, Justice Kennedy, just throwing out an analogy. The Marshall Plan was very good, too, the Morrell Act of the Northwest Ordinance, but times change. Those examples, I think, just, again, underscore that they weren't actually looking at the congressional record or any of the previous cases, you know, that engaged with the congressional findings or the history behind the Voting Rights Act. It also evinces, I think, um, a kind of, I don't know, racial exhaustion, to borrow a term from Darren Hutchinson, who is a professor at the University of Florida and will be a professor at Emory um, Law School. He'll be the inaugural John Lewis Chair in, in Civil Rights. But he's argued that you know there is a kind of tipping point where the public, and maybe even the court specifically, as part of the public, just becomes tired of having to do things to help minorities. Um, like, like this goes back to some of the earlier civil rights cases, like the civil rights cases and um, Crookshank, where the court just seems to think that newly freed slaves are just the special favorites of this particular Congress. And we really have to stop doing this kind of legislation for them. And it feels like a similar kind of moment. Like, haven't we gotten to the point where race doesn't matter, whether it's in education or voting or whatnot? Like, how as advocates do you make the case that race continues to matter over and over and over again? Melissa, if I may, just to come back to the article that you mentioned in Racial Exhaustion, I think it's actually a very important article. And it's not only because of the conception that the country grows tired of trying to um, right the wrongs that, that we have built into the Constitution and into our democracy. I actually took a different point from Darren's article, which was that the civil rights cases uh, and the that line in particular, the special favorites, there comes a time when a man must cease to be the special favorites of the laws. As you note, that line is written by the Supreme Court at the time where freed slaves are walking around with the scars of bondage on their body. And so what that tells me is that it revealed that the country was born tired, in a sense, of equality, not that it grew tired of equality, that there was resistance all along. And if there was resistance in enforcing the Reconstruction Amendments, where the identifiable victims of slavery are walking among us, if there was resistance in the court at that point, it makes me think differently of the resistance you're talking about today. Because instead I ask the question, is the notion of resistance offered as an excuse for delivering on the promise of the Constitution of equality? Is it being offered as an excuse rather than a bona fide justification of some long-lived and carefully learned experience? And so I think Darren's article is, is really an essential read in many respects because this idea of being tired of, of too much justice is something that runs through the cases. And the way that it manifested in the Section 5 cases was that everybody asked the question, 
Well, you know, don't we have Barack Obama? If you read our adversaries' briefs, we have a black president for crying out loud. Why do you need a civil rights voting statute? We have elected a black man. And of course, that does not answer the very substantial question about what the facts are on the ground in counties and parishes all over the country. And it doesn't answer the discrimination that continues. And as we have learned, becomes intensified as a response and a backlash to that event. It doesn't answer that question, but it does provide a veneer of being post-racial so that we no longer have to do the work of recognizing that America is aspirational. We're never supposed to be satisfied with today because we invite ourselves to make a, a more inclusive democracy tomorrow, and that requires work. For those who are frantically Googling to try and find this article, it is called Racial Exhaustion by Professor Darren Leonard Hutchinson, and it appears in the 86th volume of the Washington University Law Review. And that was a a terrific point, bringing that all together, Devo. Thank you. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Oklahoma recently approved the nation's first religious public school. You heard that correctly, a religious public school. If you've paid attention to the Supreme Court over the past few years, you probably noticed a trend. The Supreme Court's ultra-conservative faction gutted church-state protections in order to funnel public money to private religious schools. Oklahoma is Christian nationalist's latest test case, a blueprint for other conservative states to follow. Americans United for Separation of Church and State saw the dangerous precedent a religious public school would create across the country and promptly filed a lawsuit to stop St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School in Oklahoma. This is the latest effort to blur the lines between church and state. Taking tax money and directing it to a religious school that will indoctrinate students into a faith with plans to discriminate against anyone who doesn't adhere goes against the founding principles of our country. Americans United will keep fighting for freedom without favor, equality without exception. Keep up with this issue at au.org. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet, which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. 
Can I pose one question that I think piggybacks on something, Debo, you were talking about with respect to the court's disregard for the congressional findings in Shelby County, and maybe we'll serve as a bridge to a conversation just about appellate work kind of more broadly. Um, And that is, you know, for all the reasons that we've been talking about, there is clearly a through line between Shelby County and Brnovich um, substantively. And there's also this linkage, it seems to me, in terms of what the court does with facts, right, in both of the cases. So and we talk about appellate work, um, which you're both obviously uh, extremely accomplished appellate lawyers. Most of the time, at least in theory, appellate lawyers are arguing about law, right, as opposed to facts. And so as a general matter, right, appellate courts and the Supreme Court in particular are not supposed to be deciding de novo factual questions. And yet in both of these cases, the Supreme Court really feels like it is disregarding that basic principle of appellate review and deciding for itself these incredibly consequential factual questions and deciding them differently than either how Congress decided them or you know trial courts that actually took a close look at conditions on the ground and made factual findings. Um, and so I guess a, a kind of general question about appellate practice um, I guess, A, is is that generally kind of a through line between these two cases? But also, what does it mean in terms of how you think about litigating a case like this? You know, do you remind courts that, in fact, it is not their job to disregard these factual findings made by other bodies that are better situated to make factual findings? Do you end up arguing on the terrain of facts? Um, I mean, I guess just what does it do strategically? And then I think maybe we'll pivot to some general questions about appellate practice. Well, I think the the facts are enormously important in appellate cases. The judge I clerked for in the Ninth Circuit, the late uh, Jerome Ferris, used to always say cases turn on narrow issues, uh, factual issues, and and uh, in a lot of ways, I think he was right. In Brnovich, we uh, we of course had a trial finding. I, I I'm also a trial lawyer, so I tried the case, and and uh, we we had a trial uh, judge finding against us, um, and and uh, the en banc. Ninth Circuit uh, reversed, um, although accepting many of the factual findings that the district court had found, it just had drawn the wrong conclusions from from many of those those fact findings. And then the Supreme Court kind of waved that away. But I don't mean to be cynical at all. An appellate court is not supposed to uh, review factual findings de novo unless they want to, and in which case, you know, they, they will, they will mouth the right words. Uh, and, you know, I mean, here the Supreme Court said, well, on the, on the question of intent, uh, the circuit court just, they just weren't really, uh, applying clear error, even though they said they were applying clear error. Um, but they just weren't, uh, cause we disagree with the way they came out ultimately. Uh, now one could, I guess, uh, from the other side say, well, the Ninth Circuit was undoing the fact findings of the district court. But again, I think the, the the difference is that it accepted many of the factual findings relating to intent of the district court. It's just that uh, the, the district court kind of looked away from the obvious implications of a lot of its findings. And Kate, I'd, I'd say just briefly that the facts, of course, are important and they form the backdrop and certainly uh, one would think um, support the lower court rulings and and or the congressional uh, decision to act in some substantial way, but uh, what 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 I have found is that when you're preparing to argue an appellate case, especially a a case in the Supreme Court, you you really need to be distilling what you consider to be the most salient facts that are in service of your legal pathway to winning winning the case. And so, you know, in a 16,000-page uh, congressional record, there are many, many facts. But there are a couple of core facts 
that will animate the the discussion and that you want to try and weave in to the legal arguments and, and the touchstone issues that you're going to be forced to grapple with. And so you're essentially trying to marshal facts as um, tiebreakers or things that can help persuade a persuadable justice. And, and sadly, it, it seems that not every justice is persuadable in every case in some respects. We know some of their jurisprudence, and so we have a pretty good indication about whether or not certain justices are, are persuadable. But you're trying to marshal facts in service of being able to count to five in a Supreme Court case and thinking about those facts that may make a difference. And it's hard to know exactly what those facts are, but I think that's probably the appellate lawyer's best and highest use of their time. And it's a difference between being a trial lawyer and an appellate lawyer, as Bruce sort of is is suggesting, that they're, you have to know the facts, but you have to think about them in a different way and deploy them in a different way in an appellate argument. Um, Bruce, you mentioned that you are also a trial lawyer in addition to doing appellate litigation. Um, is that is that typical? My my judge, Justice Sotomayor, was very much of the view that the best appellate lawyers also had trial court experience because it was so critical to understand how the record was constructed when you were doing appellate litigation. But a lot of the litigators that we hear about, and certainly that we talk about on the show, are, are strictly appellate litigators, not necessarily trial lawyers. Um, what's the best sort of trajectory in your view? Well, I think the the profession has has changed over you know I got almost thirty years I guess that I that I've been practicing now uh, it was already kind of uh, becoming more and more specialized even when I first got out of law school um, and it has that has only, that trend has only accelerated and so I don't know if it's typical I do know of others who who have done both uh, or do both but I think that now especially in high stakes. Um, cases like the ones we're talking about and, and even in the business realm, you know, uh, oftentimes uh, either companies or organizations will look to someone uh, who specializes only in appellate litigation. I think either way can be a fine path. I agree with Justice Sotomayor that it is important to at least have had some experience at the trial level, even if one is focusing uh, at a given time on one or the other, uh, but to to be um, you know to, to kind of hone your skill as an appellate lawyer. Um, but I but I guess I would say that kind of a direct response to your question is that it's it's probably not that typical uh, these days. I think for 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 people to do both. Do you think that contributes to um, the perception that the appellate bar is relatively undiverse relative to the profession? And you know, this is not to say that. The profession is, you know, sort of ideal in, in terms of how it is composed. Um, but it is notable that what we consider the appellate bar really is far less diverse than the rest of the profession, certainly the way law schools are constituted. It is part of that because of the emphasis on actually just doing appellate work as opposed to trial work where you may find more lawyers of color? Well, I guess I, I would answer that in, in two ways. I mean, one, I sometimes joke that I don't I don't know where all my classmates, my African American classmates, uh, have gone. It's mainly a joke, but uh, but you know, I look at so many realms, and you can say, well, in the government, there you know, high levels of the government, there are so few African American attorneys, and uh, at the trial level, I mean, you know, the American Association of Trial uh, Lawyers, or uh, rather, the, the the College of Trial Lawyers, you know, not not diverse, um, and so you know, big firms. Firms have perpetually struggle with uh, with diversity, um, 
And I think, though, maybe if there is a particular challenge uh, at the appellate level, um, you know, it, it is more so than maybe some other areas of practice. It is a club and there are barriers to entry, right? I mean, you know, you either have to have been with the Solicitor General's office or through some other means uh, of entry. Um, and so, and I think that, you know, that club has historically been and, and still trends, you know, predominantly, overwhelmingly white, um, white and male, by the way. Um, but, but I think the, the problem is even more acute with respect to minorities and probably more acute with respect to African-Americans and Latino attorneys. And so I think that that may be uh, part of the explanation. Melissa, I, w- I would just add that I think Bruce is right. There are certain pathways, natural pathways to being an appellate lawyer, appellate clerkships. And I think appellate clerks are not as diverse as uh, as we might like, which um, you know gives people access and understanding to how judges think about appellate cases, what good briefing and bad briefing looks like, and how you you uh, form your your career to be on the right side of briefing and thinking about um, advocacy in that way. But the other point I want to make here is that there are ways to learn this, and it's not rocket science. It is a craft that is learned. Nobody is born a great appellate lawyer. I never had, not only did I not have an appellate clerkship, I never had any clerkship. The first case I argued in the the Supreme Court was Northwest Austin, but I worked and was trained by a group of lawyers that knew how to do it. I read the cases. I grappled with the doctrine. I studied the statute. I studied the record. And I tried to bring some attributes to the podium with me um, that I had forged as a litigator over some long period of time. And so Bruce is quite right. There are some natural feeding paths to a successful career in appellate advocacy. But but I'm here to say that there are many different paths to do it. And if you want to do it, you can do it. And some of the great advocates are not people that clerked for the Supreme Court, but are instead people that really put their nose to the grindstone, thought hard about the law and the facts, and and spent some late nights grappling with the tough pieces of their cases, and then stood up and have have uh, brought voice, and sometimes in civil rights cases have been a voice for the voiceless. Yeah, I really, I really want to second that. I mean, because I, I don't I don't want my earlier remarks to be taken as being kind of negative about the possibilities of um, of diversifying uh, the appellate bar. I mean, that's you know, after all, that's I think you know one of the big reasons why we're why we're here. I mean, I I totally agree. It is not rocket science. It um, there there are things I think um, we can encourage uh, to those who are interested um, in in becoming an appellate uh, lawyer uh, that will help uh, the pathway. I mean, I think I think an appellate clerkship um, you know is a is a good thing, or a clerkship of any kind is 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 helpful, and oftentimes. I find that African American students don't have um, kind of the advisory group that that suggests that they they apply for those. Uh, a lot of people just don't um, you know um, don't don't think to apply for them. That that's um, going into uh, a solicitor general's office. Not necessarily it doesn't have to be the U.S. solicitor general's office. I mean, a lot of a lot of great appellate lawyers have gone into state. Uh, solicitor general's offices and gotten training that way. And, and, and Dave was absolutely right. There are people who, you know, have done it just by interest and, and, and study. And, and, uh, 
There are uh, mechanisms like the D.C. Circuit, for instance, uh, often will appoint uh, pro bono counsel for uh, like a pro se litigant. And that was how I got my first D.C. Circuit argument um, was uh, and many, uh, many associate attorneys at the firm I was at at the time did the same thing was to take one of those on. Well, I don't want to overstate it uh, to say that because I, I just got done saying it's a club, but there are paths um, and, and it isn't rocket science. And so n- nobody should be deterred or, or discouraged, I think, by the, by the lack of uh, current diversity. And now I just have to add, we also have the appellate project, which is essentially stepping into this breach, recognizing that we need more pathways. And so this is a, you know, I am quite sure that when we look back in five and 10 years, this effort will help to... Um, mint a whole bunch of new appellate advocates uh, that we will be proud of and that will carry the mantle forward. Absolutely. Honestly, maybe part of the problem is what courts, commentators, scholars, journalists mean when they say the appellate bar, right? We use that phrase to mean the group of attorneys that regularly appears at the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals alone. But the reality is you have a bunch of fantastic civil rights lawyers and trial litigators who do stupendous appellate work and do it on behalf of wonderful causes. And we should consider those lawyers you know, part of the appellate bar and also experts on appellate practice and like turn to them for their views on the Supreme Court and appellate practice as well. Couldn't agree more. Let me ask a slightly distinct question, which is, can either of you share any advice for lawyers or law students or people earlier in their careers interested specifically in voting rights? And then what do you see as the future of voting rights litigation? And actually, maybe, Bruce, this is a, an opportunity for you to weigh in on what you see as the kind of window that remains open post-Burnovich. Obviously, there's a range of views in terms of the continuing viability of Section 2 post-Burnovich, and I gather that you have some optimism. So we'd love to hear that take. Sure. Um, on the kind of broader question of what to, what you should do or think about if if you're interested in voting rights, there, there are many ways to engage. I was always interested in, in civil rights uh, broadly, and um, I first got involved in those types of cases. Initially, it wasn't voting rights, um, but housing discrimination uh, through pro bono work at the first firm that I worked uh, at. And, um, and then I also did uh, redistricting litigation there. That, that's kind of what started me on the, the voting rights path. Uh, one could work for a public interest organization. Um, there are many excellent public interest organizations that that uh, that do voting rights litigation. There's um, uh, the government, uh, the, the DOJ's civil rights division has a voting section. Um, the, the many states actually have their own kind of mini uh, uh, civil rights division. So there there are ways to engage. It's not. I don't want to understate it and say it's easy or that the opportunities are just all over the place. Uh, you know. It, but I do think there are ways of doing it, even if you are actually practicing in another area of law, um, you know, at the very least through through pro bono uh, work. I think in terms of the future of voting rights litigation, I feel very strongly that, A, we have no option but to continue to fight these cases. Uh, we can't just give up uh, because the court is a 6-3 conservative court. It was 50-some years between Plessy and Brown. I hope it doesn't take as long <laughs> to turn uh, around some of the uh, – and I, I don't mean to suggest that it's as bad as Plessy v. Ferguson, but, but um, you know, I hope it doesn't take as long until Justice uh, Kagan's and uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg's dissents in these cases become the majority. Um, but in the meantime, uh, there are state courts the day after uh, – a couple days after we – 
got the reversal in Brnovich, we uh, got an affirmance in New Hampshire of um, a, a victory we had had at the trial court level, uh, challenging a law that made it harder for students to, to vote. Um, and there are many other state courts that have uh, progressive or at least um, neutral state Supreme Courts where these kinds of challenges can be brought. Um, Section two is not over. I mean, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been narrowed. It's been made more difficult. But claims can still be brought and I believe can still be won under Section two. There are other causes of action, even at the federal level, such as the so-called Anderson Burdick test that balances the, the, the burdens of, of these regulations against the, the state's interest. Not an easy claim either, but, but it is still very viable, a very viable claim. And then, of course, um, you know, my hope uh, is that we will see federal legislation um, that restores uh, the, the, what has been narrowed uh, in the Section 2 context and perhaps in other contexts as well, which will provide another path for um, a, preventing these kinds of vote suppression laws from, from getting enacted in the first place and uh, providing a renewed means of challenging them. And I, I guess I, I, I would just add, I, I think all of Bruce's suggestions are very good, but I, I, I just want to sort of piggyback on that and, and sort of broaden the, the, the thinking a little bit to say that he's absolutely right. We have got to fight these cases with every tool that we have um, and come up with new ways to fight them. We need to press for legislation because part of this is a dialogue that's happening between the court and Congress in our system about how important these rights are and the different institutional actors that are uh, going to have a voice about our democracy. And I think about two lessons of a book from Alex Kesar about the history of the right to vote in America called The Right to Vote. First, he tells us that the, the right to vote in America is contested. It's, it's a series of contestation. And that continues today in very pronounced ways. And so that is frightening and scary in some ways, but it's also an invitation to those of us who are willing to join the contest and the fight for American democracy because the system itself matters more than the outcome in any particular election. And so in a sense, what we are seeing right now is an invitation to a whole new generation of people that want to fight for the soul of our democracy to come forward and join the fight. The other thing he tells us is that progress is not, as people assume, unidirectional, that the history of democracy in America is characterized by ebbs and flows. So if we are in an ebb right now, it's only the shoulder to the wheel that's going to make democracy flow. And for that same reason, we need to invite more people to the party to uh, take the place of, of Bruce and I in a, in a few short years and or join us in the meantime to keep fighting for the soul of our democracy. You're here. So maybe one final question, also ending on an optimistic note. Um, what advice do you have to lawyers or to law students who are earlier in their careers who are interested in appellate litigation and maybe to give them a boost or something to look forward to? Um, what's been your proudest or your best moment as a lawyer? Well, it's terrifying. I, I, I say of arguing a case in the Supreme Court, which um, not, not everybody may aspire to. In fact, I'm not sure that it was something I aspired to. I was more interested in having argued a case than I was interested in arguing a case. It was terrifying, exhilarating, and humbling all at once. And so, uh, I, you know, trying to manage those emotions is tricky. But the, but the core point is, for a long time, long before I argued, 
I would go and see arguments at, at the Supreme Court and other courts. I would, I would watch and observe advocates doing their thing. I very carefully read briefs that were filed in cases, and I read the opinions of the court in areas that were of particular interest to me. And so in some sense, my arguments were a culmination of a very long period of study about what it takes to stand there one day at the podium. And I was trying to prepare myself in the event that I would have the opportunity or misfortune, depending on one's perspective, to be standing at that podium one day. And I think that everybody is capable of doing that um, and and figuring out what, what it would take for you to do it by watching some of the people who do it and making judgments about how you might do it the same way or differently. Yeah, again, I've got a, I've got a second, uh, everything uh, D- Davo said. I mean, Brnovich was my very first, I'm 55 years old, that was my very first uh, Supreme Court argument. Uh, hopefully not my last. <laughs> um, but, I, but I had uh, also, you know, kind of uh, done uh, a number of uh, circuit court arguments, many of which I did, you know, in the latter part of my uh, career. I mean, they, you know, it's not like I started doing this when I was right out of law school. I, I worked on briefs and, and uh, you know, helped others prepare. Um, and, uh, and so I think for folks who are interested and, or think they might be interested in doing this, um, you know, uh, there's somebody out there who needs your help. I mean, that's why I, I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat it and suggest that it's easy to, you know, to, to, to do this, but it, but it is possible and you can do it. And, um, you know, uh, jump in if it, if it has to be pro bono. Uh, I mean, great. I mean, I, I don't mean to make that sound like it's a, um, you know, a, uh, a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, but there, there are lots of organizations and lots of people who, who need your help. And, uh, and so you can uh, enter uh, at some point, either through pro bono or, or otherwise, um, and just, you know, just kind of get in the, the game of, in terms of reading the briefs and helping to write the briefs and, and preparing others for argument. Um, and then ultimately, hopefully taking that, that shot of your own. And I guess uh, that leads me to my my proudest moment, uh, which was not a public moment. Um, and it wasn't actually um, an appellate uh, case. It never, well, I actually did go up the DC circuit on, on one element and, and back down. I just remember that I, I had my own firm. I worked at another big firm for about 10 and a half years. I had my own firm for about 11 years. And, and then I've been at Perkins Coie for about six years. And, and during the period that I had my own firm, I took on the representation of a sexual assault advisor who had been badly, uh, you know, mistreated by the police and uh, and other institutions, and um, you know, in, in truth, I was little over my head, you know, in that it involved a lot of subject areas that weren't uh, in my expertise, um, and uh, and I felt like God, I just am not doing all I could do or the best for this family, and it really was a family; it wasn't just the the survivor. I just remember I. Um, I always have trouble getting through the story without choking up, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try. Um, you know, I, I would send uh, the mother and and my client and uh, her sister a um, a Christmas card every year, and and I remember sitting in my office alone shortly after New Year's, and I got an email from the mom thanking me for the card that year. The case was not over at that point, and uh, and she said to me, "I sometimes think that God must have sent you to us for a reason." And I realized that it was right to take that on, even whether win or lose, because those people knew that they had somebody in their corner 
who is fighting for them. And that's where you can enter. Like I said, you know, somebody out there needs your help and will take your help and, um, and you can get the experience uh, by helping somebody. Thank you so much for sharing that moving story. Um, hopefully that inspires, you know, other students and lawyers to follow uh, in your footsteps. Thanks to the Appellate Project for organizing this episode and to Bruce and Davo for their advocacy and for making time uh, with that advocacy for the show. Thanks to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thanks to Eddie Cooper for making our music and Liam Bendixson, our summer intern. Thank you to you all for listening. If you'd like to get involved with the Appellate Project, please check out their website, theappellateproject.org. And if you'd like to convey your enthusiasm for voting rights, you can get some great necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act merchandise at our store, available at our website, strictscrutinypodcast.com. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.